0: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, let's see. We have, some, we have some world travelers in the building. That is, uh, people who have gotten to spend time in another culture. And one thing, I've got to do it a few times. One thing I love about visiting other cultures is getting to experience the customs uh, that distinguish them from other people. That is, each culture has its own particular way of doing things, of organizing space and time, of manners around the table, that's probably the most obvious, of social conduct and etc. Now, sometimes those customs are attractive and and other times they're off-putting. But they are the things that make that particular culture distinct from others. So it makes them stand out from other people. And if you've ever visited another people, even here in the United States or across the world, you know exactly what I'm talking about. For our honeymoon, my wife and I uh, visited Italy. And I loved, but also loathed, the way that they organized their time. Because I'm an American, and I value punctuality and productivity. And I pride myself in not wasting time and squeezing out as much as I can from my day of work. In Italy, it's the very opposite, right? Time is not money like it is to us. It's more of a meandering stream. The day starts late, like sometimes like at 10 a.m., and it ends late, about 1 a.m. Lunch and dinner are basically three-hour occasions. And it was strange and quite hard to get used to at first, but by the end of our honeymoon, our last day in Rome, things had changed. I genuinely liked having a drawn-out meal, dinner over pizza and our pasta for me, pizza for my wife, that's all she ate, uh, uh, pasta and wine, and then wasting away the evening wandering the streets, eating gelato, and living like an Italian. Now, how they organized their time is one of the many things that makes them distinct as a people. And all cultures have their particularities. I'm sure some of them are coming to mind for you. And of course, so does the church. If you hear the word y'all, you can be reasonably sure you are in. (laughs) I'm hearing conflicting answers. The right answer is the American South, right? Texas, the American South, Um, y'all. If someone is slurping noodles, you're probably in Japan, which is not a sign of bad manners, but enjoyment. If you're hanging out in a cemetery rather than a public park, you're likely in Denmark. And if a stranger kisses you, you're definitely in France. Weirdos, right? Uh, But, but the question I want to ask is, how would you know that you're among Christians? How would you know that you're among Christians? If the church is a distinct people with its own culture, and it is, what marks the church out from other people? What is that one thing, if we can boil it down, that would distinguish us from the rest of the world? I want you to hold on to that question for just a moment. This morning is our third and final installment in our vision series. Now in this vision series, I have tried to set forth the central convictions that are going to shape our church in the coming years. Now the first conviction was the gospel of the kingdom. The second was the church community. And the third, which we are going to delve into today, is discipleship, or what we are calling cruciformity. So the third conviction that is going to shape our church is what we're calling cruciformity. Now, we began with the gospel of the kingdom. And rather than a combat search and rescue operation where a heavenly paratrooper descends to deliver us from the enemy and to bring us home, the gospel is more like an invasion, more like a hostile takeover. You remember C.S. Lewis' summary from last week. Enemy occupied territory. That is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, hence invasion, landed and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. In essence, the gospel is an announcement that Jesus is taking over. Remember, he began his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus has taken over. He has died and risen again to become the sole ruler of heaven and earth. His kingdom, however, does not come all at once. What the prophets expected to happen in one decisive event actually comes in two events. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations. Jesus' resurrection from the dead inaugurates or begins the kingdom, and his return consummates or completes the kingdom. And between those two events, when Jesus has rose from the dead and when he returns, there's an overlap. Jesus' kingdom has arrived, but the enemy's kingdom still remains. Next slide, please. This is what the prophets expected it to look like, where we have this present evil age, as the Apostle Paul calls it, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, and then the coming of the Christ and the entrance of his kingdom, and then the age to come, where all that is gone, all sin and death. Next slide, please. This is how it actually happened the first coming of Christ, and the inauguration of his kingdom, and then the second event, the second coming of Christ, and the consummation of the kingdom. And between that space, which we're calling the already and not yet, the two kingdoms overlap. Now, the analogy that we use to describe our place in redemptive history is this time of year. It should be spring, but it's 40 degrees outside, and Probably going to snow later, right? Neither season has the upper hand. They both compete for time and space, and such is our place in redemptive history. Both kingdoms make their present felt. Both kingdoms clash until King Jesus returns, and then there will be no more sin or sorrow or death, and so on and so forth. And so the natural question is, if there's this overlap, where can we find signs of spring? That is, where can we look to see Jesus' reign as it is in in heaven on earth? And the answer is the church community. The answer is those who have come to confess that Jesus is Lord. The springtime of Jesus' reign has begun to dawn among us, the church. And that's our second conviction or pillar. In this case, the analogy that we use to describe the church, um, describe the nature of the church, excuse me, um, is, was an ethnic enclave. That is, places like Chinatown in New York City or Little Havana in Miami or Greektown in Detroit. Now, in such places, ethnic enclaves, immigrants moved to the U.S. and brought their culture with them And then replicated it on foreign soil. Such that to visit an enclave, to go to one of these places, is like stepping into a different world. It's an opportunity to experience and learn about a completely new culture. And so is the church. It's the presence of one culture within another. An enclave within the world. Except the church is not ethnically based, nor is it from a different part of the world. Instead, the church is an enclave from the future. It is the presence of the coming kingdom here and now. In other words, it's an outpost. It's a colony of heaven on earth whose purpose is to replicate the life and culture of heaven on earth. Consider the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One day that will be true for the entire world when Jesus returns, but right now it's true for us. Or at least we're striving to make that true, where our church is a place where the Father's will, as it is in heaven, is done on earth. And as such, the church, what we called it, is the pulpit and the paradigm of the kingdom. The church is the pulpit of the kingdom because it's been given a message, that is, the gospel. Jesus has died and risen again. Sin and death have been defeated, and the kingdom has dawned. This is good news, and we must proclaim it. And as the nations respond to the church's proclamation, as they receive the good news, they're to be gathered into communities. That is, churches who are trained to live as disciples, as citizens of the kingdom. Remember Philippians chapter 3 from last week. Thus, the church is also the paradigm of the kingdom. It's the pulpit and the paradigm, meaning it's a preview, an example, a prototype of that coming kingdom here on earth now for all the world to see. Now, that brings us to our last conviction which is discipleship or cruciformity. I left a very important question unraised and unanswered last week, and that is, what is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? What is the nature of Jesus' kingdom? Because if the church's purpose is to witness to the coming kingdom in word and deed, If the church's purpose is to be the pulpit and the paradigm of the kingdom, it follows that we must know what the kingdom is all about, what it is that we are supposed to be witnessing to. Otherwise, our witness as a church would be false witness, and we would be pointing the world to something other than King Jesus and his kingdom. So again, the question is, what is the nature of the kingdom to which the church is a witness? And the answer is the cross. Jesus' kingdom is a cruciform kingdom from top to bottom and all the way through. What ultimately distinguishes us as a people, the church, from other people is not our language, though we do have our own particular way of talking certain Christian words that you have to learn to understand the lingo and to make sense of what we're saying. It's not the language. It's not the dress. It's not our particular customs, though we have all that. What distinguishes us from other people, rather, is our conformity to the cross of Jesus Christ. Is that in all our deeds, in all our actions, in all our relationships and life together— Conformity to the cross of Christ is the thing that stands out. It's the thing that people are supposed to be able to look and say, that's the church. That's what distinguishes them from other people. Now, this question about the nature of Jesus' kingdom is a very important one to the Scriptures, In fact, you could say it it might be, along with Jesus' identity, the most important question that the Gospels are trying to answer. Because everyone, including and maybe especially the disciples, constantly misunderstood the nature of what it meant to say that Jesus is king, and the nature of what it meant to say that his kingdom is coming to earth. They always misunderstood it. Everybody did. And now this question, it comes to the fore in a couple incidents involving the disciples. And the first one is recorded in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus Jesus questions his disciples about the nature of his identity. He asks them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the answer of the disciples was that the people supposed Jesus to be one of the prophets. And the people are right, but they're not entirely right. The peop- uh, Jesus is a prophet, but he's also more. And so he asks again this time, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's the first messianic messianic confession in the Scriptures. It's the first time that the disciples get at and arrive at the truth of who Jesus is. So they now understand his identity, at least in part. He's not merely a prophet. He's not merely like one of the great figures from the past, Elijah or Jeremiah or etc. Instead, Jesus is the Christ. He is the promised King of Israel, and from that time on, the Scripture says Jesus began to show his disciples that he must suffer many things and be killed. Matthew sixteen twenty one. So it's not enough for the disciples to simply confess that Jesus is King, right? Now that is a a, a great feat in and of itself. However, it's not enough. The disciples also have to understand the nature of Jesus' kingship. Because he is a king like no other. His kingship and his kingdom run through the cross. And Peter literally malfunctions at this point. It's recorded that he took Jesus aside. Can you imagine him separating him from the disciples? And it says he rebuked him. And Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, next slide, please, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Peter's mind, the kingdom and the cross are antithetical. Nothing can be more at odds with kingship than a shameful death on a cross. Instead, the kingdom, being a king, is about power. It's about glory, and it's about triumph. And though Peter might be a little bit too brash for our taste, we can certainly understand him. The kingdom is not about crucifixion. It's not about your death on a cross. And though Peter did not know it, he was operating from a satanic frame of mind. One moment, Jesus praises him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, that's as good as it gets. And then the next moment, Jesus rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. The anti-cross kingdom that Peter just took for granted is satanic. It's inspired by the ways of the world by the moral logic of a fallen and corrupt world and not according to things above specifically Jesus says Peter's mind was set on man's interests rather than God's on man's interest which brings us to our second incident in the gospels where the nature of the kingdom comes forth this one is in John chapter 20 I mean excuse me Matthew chapter 20 And it's recorded that the brothers, James and John, privately brought their mother to Jesus to make a request. So they went to mommy and they brought her to Jesus. And what was their request? In their mother's words, Matthew 20, verse 21, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. It's a bold-faced request. To have the positions of highest power and glory in the kingdom for themselves. You can see how they're thinking about Jesus' kingdom, what they expect it to be. And the scripture says, hearing this, the ten, the other disciples, became indignant with the two brothers, Matthew 20, 24. The matter was less that the brothers asked for these positions, and more that they beat them to it we know that the disciples were very much about this kind of thing. Because in the upper room, the night before Jesus was crucified, Luke tells us that the disciples got into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. Could you imagine that? Jesus ready to go to the cross, and the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to have the highest position in the kingdom. So their minds are on man's interests. And so Jesus... Once again, he has to redefine the nature of his kingdom for them. He has to get this across. So he calls them over. Next slide, please. Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, meaning the nations, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So their understanding, that is the disciples, their understanding of the kingdom is based on worldly power and glory. They're thinking And they're drawing their understanding of what Jesus is going to be from Caesar, from the examples around them. Probably the most obvious example was a man named Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer. What a great uh, nickname. Judas was a revolutionary um, who revolted against the Seleucid uh, army that was occupying the nation of Israel at that time. And he led a campaign of guerrilla warfare and beat back the occupying forces and staked out uh, some sort of territory in the temple until they could ultimately reclaim um, the kingdom and set back up their own kingship and priesthood and so on and so forth. Um, this is what Hanukkah is today, right? This is what they celebrate, where As they were camped out in the temple, the lights of the menorah didn't go out, even though they were basically out of oil. Peter probably has something like this in mind. He thinks Jesus is like a Judas the Hammer type of figure who's going to come and set things right in in that sense. But that's not the way it is. Jesus says, it's not this way among you. His kingdom is radically at odds with the examples around them. Those entrusted with authority are not high-handed rulers, but servants. And why? Because Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So, God's interests are not man's interests. Jesus' kingdom is of a different sort, defined by the cross. The Disciples obviously had a hard time coming to terms with this. Jesus' kingdom upends expectations and it undermines common sense. It's a cruciform kingdom. And anyone who wishes to share in it must take up his cross and follow the king. So turning now to our congregation, switching gears just a moment, turning to our congregation, we know that we're called to be a witness to this kingdom. Not any kingdom, not a kingdom like the earthly kingdoms of men, but the cruciform kingdom of Jesus. And so what does that look like? What might it mean for us as a church community to be shaped by the cross, to show the world, to demonstrate in word and deed the cruciform kingdom? What might that look like? I want to provide three scriptural examples that demonstrate the answer. And the first one comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians. At the heart of the letter is this passage, what we read um, earlier, about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. I'd like to read a section again. Next slide, please. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 8, 5 through 8. So Jesus' obedience is proclaimed as an act of self-emptying, an act of self-humbling. He refused to use his supreme status for selfish gain. As the NIV reads, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he did the opposite, and he lowered himself, becoming a man and dying on a cross for us and for our salvation. So what does it mean, according here to the Apostle Paul, to be cruciform? Well, it's a twofold movement. One, not acting from selfish gain. Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Not acting from selfish gain, but two, instead, acting for the good of others, even at great cost. He humbled himself, even to the point of, of death, even death on a cross. So to be cruciform are those two things, not acting from selfish gain, but instead for the good of others. Now what the Apostle Paul does is he takes that pattern demonstrated in Jesus' death and he impresses it on the church. Jesus' act of loving self-sacrifice becomes the paradigm or the model for the obedience of the church. In other words, all of our conduct is to be conformed to that same pattern demonstrated in the cross. That same pattern. Now, what does that look like? Well, again, here are the apostles' instructions. Next slide, please. please. Verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. It's the pattern of the cross, right there. It's the pattern of the cross imprinted on the church community. As Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, so too we are to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And so, too, we are not to merely look out for our own interests. And as Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, so, too, we are to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And so, too, we are to look out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. It's the pattern of Jesus' crucifixion, his love and his self-sacrifice demonstrated or or rather um, overlaid on top of the church. Not self-seeking, but self-emptying love. And when this pattern is stamped onto our hearts and overlaid on all our actions, that's what's supposed to distinguish us from other people. You know, it's not that we don't Use certain four letter words. That's a good thing. We shouldn't do that. It's not that we preserve traditional values, as appropriate as that is in our day and age. But what distinguishes us, what makes the church stand out, or what should make the church stand out, is the pattern of the cross. The self emptying love of Jesus mapped onto all of our actions. Not acting from selfish ambition, but regarding one another as more important than ourselves. That is what is done for us, and that's what we must do for one another. As the early church spread across the globe, it became an object of great suspicion to the government and to the common people. Wild rumors spread about what the Christians taught and did at their meetings. And to defend them, a certain pastor named Tertullian penned a brief explanation um, of the church's practices, critiquing the unjust accusations of the pagans. And at one point in his defense, he wrote that the attacks against the church were made out of jealousy. He said, because the church had a character of life, had a way of being about it that the pagans simply did not possess. He wrote, next slide, please. And his apology, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, for they themselves are animated by mutual hatred. He says how they are even, ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner put to death. The church and human cultures across the world share many traits and customs in common. In so many ways, right? We're just like everybody else. But the one thing that is unique to the church is the cross. That we proclaim the cross and live according to the pattern of love demonstrated in it will always mark us out from other people. Will always cause us to be salt and light. Now another instance where the pattern of the cross comes to the fore is in 1 Corinthians. There, Paul is writing to settle um, a, a bitter dispute that erupted among the church. And the particular issue at hand is whether or not believers can eat food sacrificed to idols. So, meaning there's food that was sacrificed in the temple, and then usually it was brought out into the marketplace And uh, they were wondering, can we eat that? Or if our pagan friends invite us to a dinner, and the food that they give us has been previously sacrificed to an idol, can we eat it? So on the one hand, there are the strong, or those with knowledge. And this group knows that an idol is really nothing. An idol is just a fiction. They know, right? And so they also know that eating food sacrificed to idols is not sin it doesn't defile you. You can do that, you can go to that and have it and it's not a big deal. But on the other hand, there are also the weak, the apostle Paul says, who's who do not have the same freedom and whose conscience does not allow them to eat such food. And thus the strong, because of their knowledge and freedom, cause their weak brothers and sisters to stumble. They're upsetting them and causing division in the church. And so what does the Apostle Paul do to bring a resolution to this situation? Does he say, guys, let's just play nice. You know, let's, let's, let's kind of, you know, the world's watching. We should take care of one another, this kind of thing. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to the cross. What he wants them to do is for the strong, not to act from knowledge, but from love. He tells them, take care of this liberty of yours, that it does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He wants them, in other words, to set aside their rights and prerogative for the sake of their weaker brothers. Not to tear them down, but to build them up. And Paul goes on to use his own life as an example of this. As an apostle, he has certain rights that he could assert over the churches, but he disregards them for the sake of the gospel. As an apostle, the apostle Paul has the right to receive compensation from the church, just as the rest of the apostles did. He says that those who proclaim the gospel ought to get their living from the gospel. So he could just say, listen, I'm an apostle. I should get paid for my work, right? But instead, he refuses. And he chooses instead to toil day and night as a tent maker. He writes, next slide, please. If others share the right over you, do not we more, because he planted this church. He says, nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He gives aside, lays aside his right for the gospel of Christ. So Paul and his missionary team are an example of the conduct that he wants the strong and knowledgeable believers in the Corinthian church to emulate. That is to lay aside their liberty, to lay aside their rights for the sake of the gospel and for the building up of the weak. He concludes by saying, 1 Corinthians ten thirty three, I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. And that's the rule for the church. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. And then he adds just one last word. Next slide, please. 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In the end, why does the Apostle Paul forsake his liberty and rights? Why would he go to such extent and work as a tent maker? And why does he call the Corinthian church to do the same? Because this is the pattern of the cross. Follow me, as I follow Christ Jesus. Because he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he set aside his right and prerogative as the Son of God to serve us, the weak. And in all our dealings with one another, the calling is to emulate the cross. By this, the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples. And the last instance comes from the Roman church, where once again, disputes arose about food and about what day to worship on and other matters that threatened to undo the entire community. Jewish Christians landed on one side and Gentile Christians landed on the other. So there's a conflict. Now, how do you think Paul resolved that situation? By telling the church to play nice, by telling them to get along, or by pointing them to the cross. At the end of a long argument, he says this. Next slide, please. Romans 15, 1 through 3. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul turns this church engaged in self-interested conflict toward the cross. And he shows them Jesus did not come to please himself, but to bear our burdens to the point of death. And so in conformity to this pattern, he tells those who are strong to put aside their strength to serve the weak, to build them up, Even something as minuscule as an argument about food is related back to Jesus' obedience on the cross. It's the blueprint, blueprint, excuse me, for all our actions, for what obedience looks like in all situations. So, to circle around now, circle back to our question, how do we witness to the kingdom as the church? What does it look like for us to be a cruciform uh, witness to, to Jesus and his kingdom? Well, it looks like by by building a community, a church culture that embodies this pattern of the cross, the world is to look to us and to see the good news lived out, a community not torn apart by love and self-seeking, but held together in unity and humble regard for one another. Our witness to the cruciform kingdom of Jesus Christ depends upon us building something bigger than ourselves, a counterculture that resists the worst sins and vices of our society to show forth the power of the cross, to show people in word and deed what the pattern of the cross looks like. Now, excuse me, as we come to a close, Jesus' kingship and kingdom run through the cross. And as his disciples, we must follow him, conforming our lives to the pattern of his humility. However, Jesus' kingdom and his kingship do not stop at the cross. Jesus' life takes a a U-turn, a U-shaped pattern. From his supreme status as God's equal, he descends deeper and deeper into humility taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, but his story does not end there. Next slide, please. Rather, the scripture says, verses 9 and 11 of our passage, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. As king, Jesus entirely and without reservation rejected worldly power and glory. He did not attempt to mimic the pomp and circumstance of emperors to play by their rules, but instead he walked the way of servitude and he manifested his kingship in humility and precisely Because he did renounce man's interests, he was given a greater glory. Not a false and temporary earthly glory, but an enduring heavenly one. For this reason, not in spite of it, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. That the man, shamefully crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem, mocked and ridiculed by the people, the onlookers, That very same man has been exalted as Lord of heaven and earth. And at his name, every knee will bow. Of those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Jesus is exalted through his humiliation. Indeed, because of it. And I'll end simply with this. As we conform to the pattern of the cross, it's not simply... Sacrifice. It's not always humility, because when Jesus returns in the power and the glory of his kingdom and the glory of the angels and the glory of his Father in heaven, we will also be revealed with him in glory. So I invite you up now to come receive the elements of communion, to take them back to your places, um, to commune with the Lord, and I will lead us in celebration in just one moment.